Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, September 27th through Saturday, the 29th, feature Ricardo Muti directing a program of Mozart and Rimsky-Korsakov. On the first half of the program, the overture to Mozart's opera Don Giovanni and Symphony No. 40. After intermission, with CSO Concertmaster Robert Chen featured Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Mozart's Symphony No. 40, a work lasting about 26 minutes. Ironically, it is Mozart's last three symphonies rather than the famous Requiem that remain the mystery of his final years. Almost as soon as Mozart died, romantic myth attached itself to the unfinished pages of the Requiem left scattered on his bed. A host of questions, who commissioned the work, who finished it, was Mozart poisoned, inspired painters, novelists, biographers, librettists, playwrights, and screenwriters to heights of imaginative recreation. We now know those answers. The Requiem is unfinished, but not unexplained. The final symphonies, on the other hand, number 39 in E-flat, the great G minor, number 40, and the Jupiter, number 41, continue to beg more questions than we can answer. Even what was once the most provocative fact about these works, that Mozart never heard them, is now doubtful. We no longer believe that Mozart wrote these three great symphonies for the drawer alone. That goes against all we know of his working methods, but we don't know what orchestra or occasion he had in mind. Apparently, a series of subscription concerts was planned for the summer of 1788 when Mozart entered the three symphonies in his catalog, but there is no evidence that the performances took place. It's likely that the works were conceived as a trilogy with publication in mind. Symphonies often were printed in groups of three, but they were not published during Mozart's lifetime. Did Mozart ever hear them? Even if the projected subscription series of 1788 never took place, Mozart did tour Germany the following year, conducting concerts for which we have only sketchy details. A symphony, for example, was advertised for the program at the Leipzig Gewandhaus on May 12th. And back home in Vienna, no less a musical big shop than Antonio Salieri, conducted concerts on April 16th and 17th, 1791, featuring a grand symphony by Mozart. The fact that the G minor symphony exists in two versions, with and without clarinets, argues that Mozart revised the score for a specific performance. At these performances, Ricardo Muti conducts the version that includes a pair of clarinets. No Mozart symphony, not even the brilliant Jupiter, has caused as much commotion over the years as this one in G minor, sometimes known as the Great, to distinguish it from an earlier symphony in the same key. It was one of a handful of Mozart works to capture the romantic imagination. Like the D minor piano concerto K-466, it was played and admired even when Mozart's reputation was at its lowest. It's also one of the pieces that hints at the music Mozart might have written had he lived. It inspired later composers, certainly just listen to the minuet of Schubert's Fifth Symphony. As with the greatest art, Mozart's music means vastly different things to different people. Robert Schumann loved its Grecian lightness and grace. What carried it through the 19th century, however, was the force of its tragic power and its emotional complexity. 
Like Beethoven's Fifth, Mozart's G minor symphony opens with material as famous as it is simple. In those few notes, some nervous pulsing from the violas and an unmelodious stammering from the violins lies one of Mozart's unforgettable gestures. Fifty years after Mozart's death, Franz Liszt produced piano arrangements of Beethoven's nine symphonies, claiming that aside from sheer volume and variety of timbre, one could reproduce the essence of such music at the keyboard. Mendelssohn later commented, well, if he can play the beginning of Mozart's G minor symphony as it sounds in the band, I will believe him. A response from Liszt is not recorded, but it takes no more than a few seconds at the piano to prove Mendelssohn's point. The movement progresses with such regularity, and at an urgent no-nonsense clip, Mozart stepped up the tempo from his original Allegro Assai to Molto Allegro that we are totally unprepared for the sudden harmonic jolts of the development section. Those few rocky pages, however, do warn us of the wrenching chromaticism in the Andante that follows and of the eight unison bars in the finale that still sound completely haywire today. The Andante is so poignant and so touching that we may not even realize that it's in a major key. Although it follows all the rules, the powerful minuet suggests many things, but not social dancing. Despite its inherent turbulence, the persistence of G minor and the eight measures at the start of the development that push us toward Schoenberg 200 years before his time, the last movement, like a great opera finale, ultimately creates order. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Symphony No. 40. And now on to Scheherazade, symphonic suite by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. The work lasts about 47 minutes. As a boy, Rimsky-Korsakov yearned to see the world, a desire fueled by his restricted upbringing. He had left his hometown only three times by the time he was 12, and by the letters his older brother, Voin, sent from the Far East, where he was serving in the Navy. Young Nikolai fell in love with a sea he had never seen. He devoured books about it, memorized nautical terms, and even rigged up a model brig. Like many of his ancestors and in obvious emulation of his brother, he set his heart on a career in the Navy. But at the age of 17, when his piano teacher introduced him to Balakirev, Kui, and Mozorksky, he could no longer deny that the pull of music also was strong. By the time he graduated from the College of Naval Cadets in 1856 and was due to set sail on the Almaz for a 30-month cruise, he confessed that he wanted to be a musician instead of a sailor. Although the ship took him to many distant ports, including New York City and Rio de Janeiro, Rimsky-Korsakov rarely traveled far from home once that voyage was completed, settling instead for the world of his imagination, which he depicted in the fiction of his undeniably potent and atmospheric music. Rimsky-Korsakov first tried to capture the music of the Orient with his Antar symphony. Having no first-hand experience, he borrowed a French volume of Arab melodies collected in Algiers from his friend Alexander Borodin. He was particularly proud of composing a melody for Antar with florid oriental embellishments and later boasted that the abundant use of oriental themes lent my composition an odd turn of its own, hardly in wide use until then. Within the decade, however, Rimsky-Korsakov was to hear oriental music for himself. 
Early in July 1874, Rimsky-Korsakov took his wife and young child to Sevastopol on the southern coast of Crimea across the Black Sea from Constantinople, now Istanbul. From there, they traveled to the town of Bakshisaray, where he marveled at the coffee houses, the shouts of its vendors, the chanting of the muzzins on the minarets, the service in the mosques, and the oriental music. Rimsky was intoxicated by the sounds of this otherworldly place. It was while hearing the gypsy musicians of Bakshisaray that I first became acquainted with oriental music in its natural state, and I believe I caught the main feature of its character, he later reported in My Musical Life. Music filled the streets from morning till night. In front of every coffee house, there was continual playing and singing, he wrote. But seven years later, when he returned to Bakshasray, he was stunned to discover that the authorities had cleaned up the streets and the seductive sounds of the town remained a distant memory. Perhaps hoping to experience some of the local color the place now denied him, he sailed on to Constantinople, where he stayed three days before returning home. In February 1887, Alexander Borodin died. Rimsky-Korsakov was devastated at the loss of his friend and colleague. He didn't sleep at all after hearing the news. And within days, he decided to put his own work aside in order to complete Borodin's famously unfinished opera, Prince Igor. Sometime the following winter, while he was immersed in Borodin's world of Polotsian chiefs, harem girls, and Turkish invaders, Rimsky-Korsakov conceived his own oriental fantasy, an orchestral work inspired by the Arabian Nights, a collection of Arabic, Persian, and Indian tales that had held an enormous, almost uncanny fascination for many cultures since the 9th century. The Arabian Nights had circulated throughout the West in Antoine Galland's French translation since the early 18th century. Scheherazade, as he came to call the work, was composed that summer. Scheherazade consisted of separate unconnected episodes and pictures, as the composer put it, from the Arabian Nights. Snapshots, in other words, of a world he never knew. Scheherazade is a triumph of imagination over experience. It's a feast of sumptuous colors and brilliant instrumental effects by the man, after all, who literally wrote the book on orchestration, and it quickly became a favorite romantic showpiece and a landmark in the history of descriptive music. Rimsky-Korsakov prefaced the score with a brief reminder of the premise behind the world's first great serial story, to subvert the Sultan Shahryar's vow to kill each of his wives after the first night, the Sultana, Scheherazade, spins an intricate web of to-be-continued tales, one per night for 1,001 nights, ultimately fascinating and winning over the Sultan. By the time he wrote his autobiography, Rimsky-Korsakov shied away from a literal programmatic reading of the score, denying that it depicted actual characters and episodes from the Arabian Nights. In the majority of cases, all these seeming leitmotifs are nothing but purely musical material, the themes for symphonic development, he wrote. Originally, he claimed he hadn't even planned to give the four movements titles beyond the musical labels Prelude, Ballade, Adagio, and Finale. His student, Lyadov, convinced him otherwise. The programmatic names he finally chose, however, don't refer to specific tales in the Arabian Nights, but to general scenes. Sinbad sailing the sea, a festival in Baghdad, a ship being dashed against the rocks. Rimsky-Korsakov decided to admit the titles in the second edition of the score. He conceded 
that the violin solo was meant to delineate Scheherazade as she tells her wondrous tales to the stern sultan, but the imposing theme with which the score begins wasn't reserved specifically for the sultan. In composing Scheherazade, I meant these hints to direct only slightly the listener's fancy on the path that my own fancy had traveled, and to leave the more minute and particular conceptions to the will and mood of each, Rimsky-Korsakov later wrote. All I wanted was that the hearer, if he liked the piece as symphonic music, should carry away the impression that it is undoubtedly an oriental narrative of numerous and varied fairy tale marvels, and not merely for pieces played one after the other and based on themes common to all four. Rimsky-Korsakov's genius is for an art of illusion. It has nothing to do with the precise note-specific observation of a latter-day ethnomusicologist. One day of sightseeing in Bakshisarai was sufficient for his purposes to capture the main feature of oriental music. He sought to depict the Orient of people's dreams, and that's why he called the work Scheherazade, because this name and the title, The Arabian Nights, connote in everyone's mind the East and fairy tales. With this score, which immediately became a favorite of European and American armchair travelers, Rimsky-Korsakov ensured the power of that identification for years to come. Program notes by Philip Husher on Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.